podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we are here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. Very honored to have Bryn Anderson with us today. We're going to listen to a very rare lecture from the one, the only, Joseph Campbell. In a way, he's one of my mentors. I didn't actually meet him. He passed away in 1987, I believe. But I've read so many of his books. So many of, of his concepts have permeated throughout psychology and psychedelia and conscious thinking, all of these places, new age thinking. Somehow, Joseph Campbell's just all over the place. So I felt like it was a really good time to yet again pillage the graveyard and get someone that has unfortunately left this earth to be on the show. Someone that I would love to have on the show. If he was still here, I'd be calling him, sending him emails. We'd be figuring out how to get Joseph Campbell on the show. He's in another dimension, having a great time with all his peers and loved ones. He's going to be here with us on the show in spirit. And we're going to get to this amazing lecture. But first... I have to do my social media shout out. Follow me on Instagram. If you have not already at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That's the address. If you can go there, follow me. It just gets me out there more. And of course it's about the guests. So it gets their information out there more. Follow me on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, wherever you go. To get your podcast, just click that button that connects us and the podcast sends you notifications. When there's things going on, there's new episodes, you find out about it instantly, right away. Just, doom, what's up? Oh my God, new episode of Midnight on Earth. You're going to be getting one of those very soon, actually. And of course, most important thing, I learned this from my chiropractor years ago. Word of mouth is huge. All different types of businesses rely on word of mouth, including podcasts. In order to build this audience, word of mouth is a fantastic tool. Help me out. Tell someone about this podcast that you know that likes these topics. Tell someone. Tell, you know, you can go door to door, you know, knock, knock. Hello. Yes. Do you like podcasts? Because Okay. It's door slam. Don't do that. That's a little extreme. I'm having fun. But you can tell people, tell a friend. About Midnight on Earth, we like to have fun here. We do spiritual stuff. We do serious stuff. But it always has this undertone, this undercurrent of fun and love because the divine experience is fun. Everybody thinks the divine experience is so intense. And it is. At certain moments, believe me, it can be extremely intense. But there's always this nature of fun within the divinity. There's always this sense of humor, you could say, almost. So here we are embracing that. 
And we're going to talk about that more with Joseph Campbell. Bryn, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm exhausted. I've just been going door to door asking people if they've ever <laughs> checked out Midnight on Earth before. I'm just, I barely made it. I was uh, so busy talking to were people. Were people shooting at you? Is that the deal? They were they were <laughs> chasing you off their lawn. They were, they were doing things. Please don't do that. I, I can't advocate <laughs> for that. Actually, I should take that back and say, if you felt like impelled to do that or compelled, uh, hold off. Hold, hold off, off for now. Door to door. For, for now. But... You can always tell your friends. You can always tell your family members. That's a safe, safe bet sure, right there. You know, send them a text. I don't know. It, how do you grow a podcast audience? You just keep producing compelling content that's honest. Like this is like coming from my heart. So it's totally honest. There's like, it's completely transparent. There's no like, uh, there's no weird artificial layer of BS or whatever. There's nothing like, there's no veneer there's just it's just us it's just real this is 100% me this is 100% authentic you just really can't get any more authentic than this but let's get to our lecture I guess you know this, this is an incredible lecture there's so much output that Joseph Campbell has had over the years of course his book the hero with a thousand faces there's so much that he's influenced over the years. But let's just read his bio, and then we'll go from there. Joseph John Campbell. I didn't actually know his middle name before this point. Joseph John Campbell. Born March 26, 1904. Died October 30th, 1987. Was an American professor of literature at Sarah Lawrence College who worked in comparative mythology and comparative religion. His work covers many aspects of the human experience. Campbell's best known work is his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, 1949. It was written in 1949. Holy cow. In which he discusses his theory of the journey of the archetypal hero shared by world mythologies termed the monomyth. Well, it's kind of like a monolith, right? Previous episodes, if you're a fan, talking about monoliths. Since the publication of The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Campbell's theories have been applied by a wide variety of modern writers and artists. His philosophy has been summarized by his own often repeated phrase, follow your bliss. Yes, yes. He gained recognition in Hollywood when George Lucas credited Campbell's work as influencing his Star Wars saga. And that's true, and so much more. Really, George Lucas hired Joseph Campbell to create the mythology of Star Wars, the archetypal mythology. This is why Star Wars is like this religion in America. It's because it was designed by somebody that understood every facet of mythology and religion and knew exactly where to poke and prawn to really activate those archetypal feelings, those genetic memories and look at Star Wars since 1978. It's like, it's like literally a religion in America. Like it's literally an American religion. There's one religion that bonds everyone here. It's strange. I don't know how I feel about it. I'll just say no comments. But there's one religion. It's the Star Wars religion. It's very strange. Brian, what are your thoughts on that? I would have to say uh, that seems to be true. I mean, for how long it's been going on and people are still 
talking about it and dressing up and collecting toys and all those things. I think his expertise of mythology and just his multifaceted understanding definitely, um, yeah, he was able to create a mythology that stuck. And you impressive. know, one thing that I'd like to point out about Joseph Campbell is that people that know me personally know that I'm a very big fan of the band The Grateful Dead. I absolutely love them. Absolutely love them. They're a mystical cosmic band. And we'll be talking more about that in future episodes, I'm sure. But funny story is Joseph Campbell did go to a Grateful Dead concert. He was neighbors with Mickey Hart, one of the drummers of The Grateful Dead. And they met each other because they jogged at the same time in the morning and in the same neighborhood. So they got to know each other. He invited, he being Mickey Hart, invited Joseph Campbell to a Grateful Dead concert. And Joseph Campbell was like, oh my God, when he made it there. Reportedly, he danced ecstatically when he noticed all the different energies and frequencies that were flowing around this massive ritual, this massive psychedelic ritual. And he could see that it was a modern manifestation of an earlier human experience, an earlier ritualistic human experience. And he loved it. I mean, obviously, right? He knew right away he instantly was a deadhead. So there's a little side story about Joseph I, Campbell. I love that he got to go and see it through his lens that's super cool oh yeah it was later in his life i think it was uh well it had to be in the 80s you know yeah. if he passed away in 87 so yeah it's probably like 85 or something like that it, it was talked about in phil lesh's book searching for the sound is autobiography highly recommend that book but yeah joseph campbell he gets around star wars the grateful dead <laughs> you know influencing countless people really i feel like he's the einstein of spirituality like He's an absolute genius. He gets better with age. You know, 1904, this one's from 1967. This one we're going to listen to this lecture. And he just kept going all the way up until he died. There's incredible videos out there. I highly recommend the Mythos video series. I watched that many years ago, and I gained a lot from the experience. I learned a lot from the experience. So I highly recommend that. So what we're going to be listening to is a lecture called The Celebration of Life. It was in Cooper Union, New York City. It took place on March 1st, 1967. I like listening to these older lectures in a way. You notice that Aldous Huxley, Timothy Leary, you know, some of the lecture episodes that we've had, obviously Manly P. Hall, they're all fall into that 50s to 40s to 70s, Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale. I like listening to these older lectures from these notable figures because it just shows you that information, true knowledge is timeless. They're channeling true knowledge from time immemorial, thousands of years ago, thousands, thousands, thousands. But they're putting it through a modern filter. The information doesn't change. So I love listening to these old, older lectures and gaining still i think it's really amazing and, and of course like i said you know having those people on that have passed on that are in the other dimension it, it makes me feel special it, it makes me 
it makes me feel like I'm making space for Joseph Campbell's spirit to enter this podcast and influence more people around the world. You know, we're up to 66 countries. I haven't checked. It's probably more. So we're giving him another chance. The spirit of Joseph Campbell. We're all going to listen to this guy. Teach us just a little bit more. So on that note, here we go. The celebration of life. Joseph Campbell, Cooper Union, New York City, March 1st, 1967. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard the saying that uh, mythology is other people's religions. Now, I'm going to ask you in these talks to put yourself in other people's shoes and have a look at your own as mythology. Nietzsche has said, this is the age of comparisons. It works on all levels. And in the realm of what I'm calling mythology, which many people call religions, there are cross influences operating today that would have been thought impossible a hundred years ago. Furthermore, it's good to recall, to remember, that our cultures and our races, the Mongoloid, the Negroid, and the Caucasoid races, are very, very late arrivals in the history of the human species. And we already have very interesting evidence of religious or mythological practices in races long antedating ours. For instance, in the High Alps, they were discovered in the 20s, 1920s, in very small caves, right on the level, right below the ice level of the glaciers, little shrines containing the skulls of cave bears. Now, during the course of the last glaciation, the Wurm glacial period, those caves were covered with ice. No one could have gone there. And after the time of that glaciation, there were no cave bears in the world. So these little shrines with these cave bear skulls and little fires and little instruments of showing that there had been worship practiced there date from 200,000 years ago. What is this mystery uh, that makes the human species bow before some sign of mystery. Each of us has been brought up in some tradition that has its imagery of that mystery. But the point I want to start out with is that in the human heart and in the human mind, no matter what the race, the culture, the language, the tradition, there is this sense 
or at least the possibility of experiencing the sense of a mystery and an awesome mystery and a very terrifying mystery inhabiting the whole universe the very mystery of being itself and here in these very early little signs these very early shrines we have the evidence of man 200,000 years ago bowing and asking for something and devoting themselves to something in this way of religion which we continue to know in this aspect, that inflection and that other throughout the world today. Now there have been in the past 200 years a great, great many investigations and researches some of them very pious, some of them very cynical of the religions of the world, and certain quite constant motifs, basic themes have come out throughout the whole field. These universals, these continually recurring themes, also in each of the various areas, there are quite special, particular inflections, quite different from those in other areas. That is to say, we have this spectacle of continuity and consistency, and at the same time, differentiation. Now, I want to speak tonight in a very general way to uh, the main problems that uh, these situations and these observations bring up. What are the functions, the human functions served by mythologies, by symbolic forms, which have been served, we can now say, for 200,000 years and have sustained the race even on the simplest level and even on the levels of the highest cultures. We all know the greatest monuments, the greatest architectural and art monuments are in celebration of these mysteries. I don't care where you turn. These are the things we now go by jet to see. <clears throat> Let us consider this problem. The human eye opens at a rather late stage in the development of the individual. He has already done the most marvelous work he will ever do. In a mysterious way, in his mother's womb, he has built a human body. And this body has organs that are directed to certain ends and intentions. And these were not the organs designed by reason, designed by consciousness. Reason and consciousness comes to itself and asks later, what is it I'm all about? What is it I am here for? Why is it I do this and that? Furthermore, 
the coming of the eyes into the human, uh, not the human, the general biological picture is very late. Life had already originated hundreds of millions of years before eyes opened and saw what was going on, saw what life was doing. Now if you'll see and think what it is that life does, that life has to do in order to be life, it has to kill and eat other life. That's the basic thing. This is a rather monstrous thing. And when the eyes see what the situation is on which its own life depends, its own existence depends, when conscience and consciousness become aware of the preconditions of their own existence, there is often a sense of shock, a sense of horror. You know, the basic word of Buddhism, all life is sorrowful, that's one way of recognizing this. There is also the feeling many have of guilt simply for being alive. This is, in a way, symbolized in the image of the fall in the garden. Life is monstrous. Consciousness has other notions of how things ought to be, what virtue is, and so on. One of the problems that man has to face is reconciling himself to the foundations of his own existence. And this is the first function of mythology. That reconciliation of consciousness with the mystery of being, not criticizing it. Shakespeare, in his definition of art in Hamlet, where he says, art, or the art of acting, as it were, holds the mirror up to nature, is a perfect definition, I would say, of the first function of mythology. When you hold the mirror up to yourself, your consciousness becomes aware of its support, what it is that is supporting it. You may be shocked at what you see. You may be greatly pleased. But one way or another, you become aware of yourself. Your consciousness becomes aware of that darkness, that being which came into being out of darkness and which is its own support. The first function then of a mythology is the reconciliation of consciousness to the foundations of being and the realization of their mystery as something that consciousness is not going to be able to criticize, not even going to be able to elucidate, not even going to be able to name. It is something beyond naming, beyond all definitions. That's the first point. And when that is lost, one loses this sense of awe, this which Goethe calls the best thing in man. One loses the sense of gratitude for one's privilege of having this center of consciousness aware of these things. The second function of a mythology is to 
present an image, a total image, of the universe as consciousness is aware of it. We have to encompass the whole of what we know and see that in terms of this mystery. Now, as you immediately realize, in the course of the ages, in the course of time, man's understanding and man's image of the universe has greatly, greatly changed. The view of the world round about that the Pawnee Indian would have had on the plains of Nebraska 200 years ago is very, very different from what is now propounded in the University of Nebraska. A totally new cosmos has come into being, has come into our consciousness. Likewise, when we read in the book of Genesis, the story of the creation of the world, that's not the world that our scientists are telling us about. Read an account of the coming into being of the cosmos from the spiral nebulae hundreds and hundreds of millions of years ago and try to bring that into accord with the biblical story or try to bring it into accord with any of the inherited stories. The image of the cosmos must change with the development of the mind and the knowledge. Otherwise, the mythic statement is lost, and man becomes dissociated from the very basis of his own religious experience. Doubt comes in and so forth. You must remember, all of the great traditions and little traditions in their own time were scientifically correct. That is to say, they were correct in terms of the scientific image of that age. So there must be a, a scientifically validated image. Now you know what has happened. Our scientific field has separated itself from the religious field, or vice versa. It was actually the religious community that rejected the scientific community in the 17th century. And this divorce is a fatal thing and a very unfortunate thing and a totally unnecessary thing. There is no reason whatsoever for clinging to the literal, the literal reading of a scientific statement that is 4,000 years old. It must be read another way. And there is something else being said there which is lost if you either hang on to the old science or reject it. Now the third function of a mythological tradition is to validate and maintain a certain moral order. Now these moral orders greatly differ from one society to another. For example, the requirements of a primitive hunting community are very, very different from those of a primitive planting community. What is required of the young men and women when they mature is in each case quite different. Likewise, in a complex society of differentiated tasks, 
with professional doctors, medicine, uh, medical men, professional astronomers or scientists, professional governing people, professional trading people, all of these coordinated in one society, we have a quite different social problem, quite different moral problem from that of a simple primitive community. And so there is this variation from society to society in terms of the social orders. Now some of these social orders are extremely um, ruthless and fierce in their requirements and extremely narrow in their demands. Individuals may be thus divorced, separated, so to say, from their own nature. Read some of the descriptions in the anthropological works of the primitive initiation rites. What is done to the young people in some primitive societies in order to test their courage, in order to integrate them in the social group? Now, most societies are extremely dogmatic and fierce in their integration of the individual. The individual is born as a separate entity. He is carved up, so to say, and made to fit into a pattern that the society requires. It doesn't require a total man. It requires a part man, not an individual, but a dividuum, someone who has been divided up and put into a notch this happens in the most primitive societies already. Nature produces this wonderfully rich being, full of possibilities. The society, and you cannot blame society, it is in a circumstance of its own, requires a certain specific limited type. It's got to have that, otherwise it can't exist particularly on the primitive levels where the margin for existence is very, very slight. And so the individual is, so to say, carved into shape, scarified and teeth knocked out. He's, his body is changed so that he'll know, I'm a member of this group, not that group. One of the very important essential ideas in mythology and, and in the rites of a mythologically-based culture is that the individual must be shaped he must be made to react in the way that that culture wants. And in so shaping the person, the person is removed, so to say, from his own nature. So we have two levels here. The nature level, which all men potentially share, and the local social level. Now always, as we all know about societies, there is a group that finally gets hold of it and has certain vested interests in keeping things as they are. And when there is a change, when the social structure changes, this group continues to hang on, and it enforces its rights, so to say. And here, right within the social order itself, a destructive, dissolving principle begins to operate. We can see this in the history of religions. One of the great <clears throat> crises, for instance, is the 12th and 13th centuries, when the pattern of early medieval Christianity began to disintegrate because 
new ideas were coming in, new possibilities were opening up, a much more highly educated and uh, multitudinous um, elite class was developing, and the old comparatively simple ideas no longer held. There was a terrific fermentation at that time, heresy all over the place. Heresy is the life of a mythology, really, and orthodoxy is the death. The fourth function of a mythology, then, is to center and integrate the individual in relation to himself, the microcosm, in relation to his society, we'll call that the mesocosm, the in-between cosm, in relation to the universe as he's able to know it, and finally, in relation to that ultimate mystery of which I spoke in the beginning. Now let me say a word about the problem of integrating the individual, what the problem is here, because this is the thing that has been the same. Societies have changed, but the problem of the individual in his life course has not greatly changed. The human being is a very strange animal. He matures. I say that constantly. When he is about 20 years old. Uh, not anymore. He has been growing for 20 years. Most animals, that's the length of a lifetime. So here is a creature who has grown for 20 years in an in a attitude and in a position largely of dependency uncertain of himself, turning, particularly in the earlier years, the first 12 or so, to his parents for help, instruction, protection, approval, and punishment. This creates a psychological structure of dependency. The individual is in an attitude of dependence on parental figures. Then we ask him, to become responsible, to assume responsibility, grow up. This is the crisis of the transit from infancy to adulthood, from dependency to responsibility. Something has to be done to make it happen. It won't happen automatically, as we now know from the problem of psychoanalysis. A person who looks like an adult, but every time responsibility is thrown upon him, turns around to see where mother or daddy is, just hasn't passed that threshold. A neurotic is a person who is having responses of dependency when they ought to be responses of responsibility. That's all it is. So then he goes to a psychiatrist who tells him, grow up. That's about all the problem is. <clears throat> but that's not so easy, because uh, after you have, uh, you know, the business of a reflex, stimulus, response, the response takes place, the response of dependence, dependence, dependence. Now suddenly it's got to be responsibility. <laughs> and uh, so here it's going, you say, oh, gee, look, I'm 30 now, uh, I've got to be over here. And the thing uh, gets mixed up. The primitive and uh, traditional initiation rites have to do with 
transforming the mode of reaction, sometimes and usually terrifically uh, frightening and actually uh, very painful rituals so that the individual will no longer think he's a little boy. Uh, there's some rather amusing ones in relation to this from Australia, for instance, where things are pretty fierce. When little boys begin to be kind, become a kind of nasty and difficult for their mothers to handle, uh, the women get together and give them a good beating around the legs with uh, sticks and so forth, and then in a few weeks, something very interesting happens. The men, all dressed up in strange godlike costumes, such as the youngsters have always been taught were the figures of the divinities, they come in with bull roars and yowls and all kinds of terrifying noises, and the children, the boys, run to their mothers for protection. And the mothers pretend to protect them. And the men grab them and take them away, so mother's no good anymore. Uh, now they have to face this thing. And then what they have to face is, is, is really no fun. Uh, one of the uh, little crises, the boy is behind a uh, screen of bushes and a lot of very interesting things are going on outside in the f at night, dances and so forth. The boys are told not to look. Well, any boy who does look, can you imagine what's done with him? He's killed and eaten. That is one way to handle juvenile delinquents. <laughs> Any youngster who will not cooperate with the society that is supporting him is just eradicated. Then... I think he's serious. He is given a chance to see what's going on out there. So he's sitting, a scared kid, I mean he's about 12 or 13 years old, at the end of this uh, uh, dance field, and it's night, and a strange man comes out performing the uh, myth of the cosmic kangaroo. And uh, uh, this, I'm not kidding. Then the cosmic dwarf comes out and attacks the kangaroo. This is all part of the mythology of the totem ancestor. And after the youngster has seen this, here he's sitting down the end, as though you were watching a show, you know. And these two big fellows come rushing down the field and jump on the kid and continue to jump on him. Well, now he re he's going to remember kangaroo and dog forever. The, uh, they, this thing is built in. They may not be bright, but they get the point. And there aren't many points to be got. <clears throat> there are other things that happen that I won't go through, but they're all pretty um, exciting, let's say. And when they're all over, the kid isn't the kid he was before he came. A lot has happened. His body has been changed, and he's, he's then sent back to the girls. And there's one of them already selected to be his wife, and he's now a guaranteed little man. And he's going to be, behave as a man of this crowd ought to behave. <clears throat> That's not quite the way we educate our youngsters. We have another idea for them. The traditional notion of a mature adult is a person who behaves as he ought to behave, 
who behaves as the society has always asked him to behave. Uh -uh. Grandpa behaved this way. <laughs> so did great-grandpa. And every kid who didn't was eaten. So we all behaved this way. That is to say, the adult is the one who accepts and represents the order of the society without question. This you get in all traditional societies. Now you know what we call a person who behaves that way. This we call a stuffed shirt. He has never built anything particular out of himself. He has simply done as told. He's sure of what's right and what's wrong, and that's that. Now we can't have this anymore, and we don't want it. Our notion in our society today of an adult mind is a mind that accepts responsibility for its own actions, that judges in terms of values, not saying, oh, I want this because I like it, but in terms of an ordered and considered value scale. The individual is to judge, the individual is to criticize, and the individual is to represent with courage and loyalty his judgments. Now this asks a lot of the society itself that wasn't asked before. This also tends to shatter the idea of authority. Now that idea was formally validated by saying it came from God. The Lord of the universe ordered things this way for the society. A point I want to make is this, that all of these divine interpretations of local laws of local social orders are simply cooked up. They're not true. The society has changed with time. These are functions of conditions, of geography and history. One must realize that the moral order is in flux, is changing. There is no God-given right, wrong, true, false, moral, immoral. And with that kind of relativism, one is free to live as a, as a human being, not simply as a, <coughs> pardon me, as a uh, robot repeating patterns that have been enforced in the past. And so we have a much more sophisticated idea toward the social order. However, when it comes to this other problem of the natural order, one's nature as man, the thing is not quite so relativistic. Now, the, the next stage in the mystery of the human development is that of old age coming on. Just about when you learn how to do what they've been trying to teach you, uh, you begin to fumble. <laughs> And that, then you have to uh, <clears throat> sort of pull yourself together and for another few years act as though you still could do it. And then everybody else begins to see if he's not doing so well. They put another waiter in to take over the job for you and that kind of thing. And uh, you're gradually eased out. Uh, in other words, 
the first function of the local social mythology was to bring you from childhood dependency to responsibility in terms of the social demands. And then just about when you're beginning to feel good about it all, the society that has said, you've got to do what we want, begins to say, well, it looks as though you can't do what we want, so you're on your own. Then you have what's called a nervous breakdown. <laughs> the next problem then, in a mythological order that is going to take care of us, is to tell us what to do with our psyches when that begins to happen. The economic problem isn't the main one. Not that somebody should, uh, you know, give you a fishing rod and send you out fishing and then have dinner for you when you come home. It's what are you going to do with that power inside you? You've become somewhat aware of the world, of the mystery of the world, and you just don't want to go doodling along with silly little children tasks, and that's not what you're worth. It's not what you're ready for. There are problems to face. The most challenging one is death. Man is the only animal that knows he's going to die. And as soon as you fumble that ball, coming. Schopenhauer has a wonderful line somewhere. He says, the first half of life, when there's a knock on the door, you think, here it comes. And the last half of life, when there's a knock on the door, you think, here it comes. <laughs> so we find this wonderful problem, and the mythologies in general, the religions, have served it. They have provided images and tasks and disciplines that carry the child from childhood dependency to responsibility, rather simple responsibilities, those that the society says you've got to accept. And then they've provided a way out. They tell you that daddy will be up there and you're going back home. <clears throat> now this isn't quite enough anymore. Is it any wonder that our clergymen look a little bit anxious these days? <laughs> now I just want to speak about the phases in the development of any mythology. How does it start and, and what happens to it? I think one could say this that all of the high cultures and low cultures and primitive cultures and charming simple cultures and great big enormous ones have grown out of myths. They are founded on myths. And what these myths have given has been inspiration for aspiration. The economic interpretation of history is for the birds. Economics is itself a function of aspiration. <clears throat> it's what people aspire to that creates the field in which economics works. And people who don't have any aspirations, you know, the 
problem of a businessman who can't get people to want anything. It's the want, it's the aspiration. And what is wanted is not simply one, two, or three meals a day in a bed. That's not enough. It's got to be much more than that to make a life. Now, where do these aspirations come from? They come from a very wonderful childlike thing, fascination. You know, if you wanted to make money today, I think, I'm no economist, but I'll bet the thing to do would be to invest your money in something like cameras, things that people play with, things that they're fascinated by. These fascinations are the creations of new activities. And when we look at the old cultures, we can see, and some of it is very strange to see indeed. What is most fascinating to begin with is one's neighbor particularly if the neighbor is a very strange-looking creature. <laughs> now think of man in the old days. He was a minority on the planet. And when he looked at his neighbors, they had four feet, they had horns, they had great woolly bodies, they were very strange playmates. <laughs> Furthermore, he was eating certain of them, and uh, they were rather dangerous. <clears throat> he had to arrange some kind of arrangement with his neighbors, namely these animals. And we know that the first religious rites and the first religious address, so to say, was to animals, their neighbors. These were the images of God, as our neighbors are today, but they're not four-footed for the most part. Some of them act that way, but they're not. <clears throat> the animal world was the first inspiration, and the divinities were animal divinities. And not only that, but just as kids, when they identify with something, when they are fascinated by something, they act like it, they play it. So the original rituals, the hunting people, danced buffalo dances, deer dances, called themselves after the names. Their tribes were called weasels and buffaloes and all these things. They were in covenant, so to say, with the animal world. And the notion was, this is a very interesting thing, that through this covenant, the animals gave their bodies willingly to be eaten because only the body dies the being comes back. If you return the blood of the animal to the earth, the life is in the blood. The earth is the mother of life, and the animal will be back next year. A fundamental hunting right. If you want the animals to be back next year, you have to perform this. People who lived then in the plant world, <clears throat> the world of the tropics, where nature was a plant world, they saw something else. They saw that out of rot, out of decay, <laughs> there comes life. And this notion that out of death comes life becomes a very important thing in the tropical cultures. 
And it led to what us is a very horrible pattern of rituals, rituals of human sacrifice, killing people, letting them rot, burying them with the notion that out of this death there would come life. In Indonesia, Borneo, the old headhunters, <coughs> the idea was that before a young man could marry and beget life, he had to kill life. He had to get ahead. <laughs> It's cracking jokes, everybody. Joseph Campbell, comedian. And if you've ever <clears throat> witnessed any movie or uh, by any other means uh, the representation of a Borneo marriage ceremony, the head is right there <clears throat> when the young couple are having their wedding dinner and the head is being fed. And the youngster who's going to be born is going to have the name of the man who had that head. That man's coming back. This notion that out of death comes life becomes a very important theme in the later religions of the world. <coughs> he who loses his life shall find it is a spiritualization of this idea. <coughs> then, when the first cities appear in Mesopotamia, about 3000 BC, <clears throat> large communities grow up based on agriculture. The planting has to take place a certain time, reaping a certain time, and there are professional priests watching the heavens to know when those times were, when those times came. And those men became aware of the movement of the planets through the fixed stars. And they calculated and recognized that these planets were moving in mathematically inevitable courses. <coughs> and the idea came into being at this time in Mesopotamia of a cosmic order of mathematical precision. On and on, eons, as the day comes and goes, the year comes and goes, the eons come and go and the whole society must go into accord with that. This idea that the human society should reproduce the heavenly order comes in. The neighbors now were the stars and the planets, and this still lives with us in our religions. All of our religions have inherited this motif from the old Babylonian world. It went out with the higher civilizations to India, to China, even across the Pacific, to Mexico and Peru. And you see these great towers, these great temple towers that represent the mountain of the world and on, it's the axis of the world around which the world turns as it does around the pole star. The whole world and society and the individual in it are like the planets moving in a great course. Now in the 1920s, <coughs> Sir Leonard Woolley, excavating in the old city of Ur, remember Abraham the man from Ur, he left the ziggurats. Sir Leonard Woolley excavating in the graveyards of Ur found graves 
in which there were 30 and 40 people buried, all of them in court attire, who had been buried alive. When the king died or was killed, at a certain time in the movement of the planets, when the moon goes down and the planet Venus along with the moon, that was the end of an eon, the king and his entire court walked into the grave. They were playing a game. Just as the hunters were imitating animals, just as the planting people were imitating plants, so the high civilizations began with princely, aristocratic little groups imitating the stars to the death, going all the way. The whole court at the end of an eon went in the grave so that another court could come. And uh, it's a very poetic thing, really. <coughs> the harpists, the little girls who played the harps. We have these harps. They have been excavated and restored. These little skeleton ha hands. The girls' hands were still on the harp strings. The women in one of the graves had uh, golden hair ribbons. <coughs> one girl didn't have her golden hair ribbon on. It was found, thank you, Joseph, in her pocket. She had been late for the party and hadn't had time to put her ribbon on. <clears throat> well, now we don't do that anymore. That kind of action has fallen into desuetude. Nevertheless, the king still wears the golden crown of the sun the kingly paraphernalia of the installation of Queen Elizabeth and so forth, or of the burial of Winston Churchill a couple of years ago was an imitation of these heavenly movements. And even in our own country, the burial of President Kennedy, those horses with their black feet, their feet blackened, the color of the horse, the cannon and so forth, the number of the horses, the horse with his inverted spirit, uh, stirrups and all, all of these are imitations of old rites in which the king is dead and his vehicle, his horse, is going with him. <clears throat> the sense has gone, yet the poetry somehow echoes. What happens is that the old fascination disappears, an echo remains, and you have, as it were, the uh, vestige of a mythology. The problem of our present age is to recreate the mythology for today, on which people will live, on which the society will grow, it is being done. It's being done well. People aren't always looking in the right place for it, but it is taking shape. Our great artists, our great poets, our great scientists. Read, for example, Erwin Schrodinger's little book, My View of the World. This is, the, this is a vision of a poet and of a first-rate physical scientist. 
and it has the same song in it that one reads and hears in the old Upanishads and in the sayings of the great prophets, right out of today's experience. Nature is still ours. It is in us, it is in the universe. And what it shows is that tremendum, that mystery that was shown in the first place. And that's the basic problem of the poet and of the myth, as I said in the first place, to reconcile consciousness to its own source, namely nature, and or what one might conceive to be within or behind nature. Secondary to that is the social situation. Now in our society, the social problem is turned over largely to the police and to Congress. It's a purely practical matter. However, the creatures that constitute the society, these are today the neighbor. They really are. <clears throat> the idea of a personal God living somehow somewhere else out there, there is no out there anymore, there's no more up there. It's awfully difficult to validate. But it seems to me if one's looking for the personality of God, it's right here in the multitudinous personalities of those around us. Everything I find in the poets, in the scientists, who push through to this mystery points not to the animals as our neighbors, not to the plants, not to the planet, but to that other one, the thou whom you face, who's not the thou you would want him to be. He's other. And it's that recognition of otherness that is absolutely basic and necessary. Now this doesn't mean that you have to give up your otherness in recognition of him. There may darn well be collision, but it's got to be collision with reverence and respect. I've been reading <coughs> recently a great many medieval works and these involve, particularly in the Arthurian romance and so forth, knights in combat with each other, fiercely in combat, with complete respect for each other, even love for each other. And there's one wonderful line in Wolfram von Eschenbach, when two brothers, who didn't know they were brothers, were in combat. In fact, they were half-brothers. One was a Christian, and the other was a Mohammedan. They were in combat. And Wolfram says, if one wished to think of it that, one, that way, one could say that they were two battling. But they had the same father, and they are one. And they are one, battling himself out of loyalty, out of honor, and doing himself much harm. But that's the tragic sense as I say, life begins, and that's the thing, the first thing the eye sees. Life eating itself, killing, but that's life. And the reconciliation of consciousness, which revolts from this, to that and its affirmation, that 
is the song of mythology. It has been. It's the song of the religions. And with that little affirmative theme, the affirmation of life as is, I would say we have the key to the hopping up, the stepping up, the invigorating of life, which has been the function, actually, the first function of mythology from the time the old cavemen asked the bear to give his body for their life. So with that little theme, I'll close with thanks to you all. Hey, thank you, Joseph Campbell, for a lifetime of service and devotion to the in-depth study of mythology, the nature of mythology, and the nature of world religions and how it's all interconnected. He found the golden thread that connected everything and talked about it in his various books and also in this lecture, which was so amazing. There was so much to unpack. Bryn, what did you think about that? I love how excited he is about just, I mean, you can just hear his his brain going off and all the little pockets of knowledge and things that he's learned and like putting them all together. It's like, you could almost like see it happening as you're listening to him because he's so excited about all the little parts, but yeah, rites of passage is such an interesting theme because I often think about that, that I don't know. It seems like we're kind of in a funny place of not really like what is a rite of passage for a young adult to being an adult besides like a driver's license and a, you know, an ID to go into a bar. Like there's many of them, but it it's so, it's so different than it was. And that tribal way is so intense. Like we're not, you know, doing, going through these rituals where you're, you know, like he said, he's like, br- you're breaking the brain. You're not going back to being a child anymore. Your whole course of action has been shifted in this like intense way. And we don't do that. We have these sort of other little celebrations, but I don't know. That's something I've thought about a lot. Is um, I don't the have any answers of, any, at the all. Lack but lack of just, a functional ritualistic mythology in our Western culture. Yes, thank you for putting that in a sentence. Yeah, that's all pretty. <laughs> you know, it's the way he structured it. It made it easy to understand. It's like, yeah, we do have that deficiency. We we don't have a lot of rituals. You know, we participate in rituals in the sense that we like to go to concerts. I know I like to go to concerts. Right. That's one that's stuck for sure. And, you know, we'll talk about that in future episodes, but that's one aspect. But the thing is, is that he touched on so much. And what it showed you is that the development of the human itself is a reflection of the development of culture and the development of mythology. Like all of Mm -hmm. it comes from this general pattern it's microcosmic, it's macrocosmic. You see it in the personal development of a child and also the development of cultures collectively. And through time, it was really powerful. There was so much he touched on. Right, and just the the first thing, the beginning, like what's the first function of building this whole mythology, whether it's the personal, the familial, the societal, like on and on, like with the whole purpose of that, you know, that he has coming down to that like awakening of consciousness and looking at like whoa i'm here and i have to eat and why am i here and all you know all the huge implications and um just cosmic reality of that well i noticed that the first 
religions he was talking about were addressing these animals because they were super excited about these other life forms. They saw them early in prehistory. Humans I'm talking about saw mm-hmm. them early in prehistory as these divine apparitions, these living embodiments of this divine energy. And they felt the energy and those original religions, those original mythologies were based on the relationships of humans with animals. They deified the animals because of their respect and admiration for them as embodiments of this divine energy. It's really fascinating to think about. Oh yeah. I mean, I I think that's, that is pretty amazing to think about. And just that respect and, um, with the animals looking at the reciprocity of their relationship of them honoring the animals and then the animals giving their bodies and this whole cycle of that within the religion and the mythology that it was this whole like physical function, but then also the spiritual function as well. Yeah. And you know, he just talked about so much. All cultures were founded on myths inspiration for aspiration the myths gave you inspiration to do better to do more early on in history it seems that humans have these strange modes of function that in order to create inertia movement in certain ways that you have to have these esoteric goals these these esoteric guidelines in place and they're valid if they're moving you forward and you're doing positive things and you're, you're helping things develop, whether it's small scale, like in your community or thinking bigger in the cosmic consciousness sense, the collective consciousness. Yeah. That's that. It's that aspiration that really pushes us forward. And if it's rooted in service, if it's rooted in love, then it's pretty amazing. But yeah, it seems like it's been a part of us in various forms Throughout prehistory. And that's the thing you get with Joseph Campbell. You get just this in-depth. He reminds me of Manly P. Hall in a way, in a lot of ways. But uh, he, you get this in-depth, deep knowledge that uh, really touches on so many things at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, he seems to be looking more at like the things that Manly P. Hall talks about. Joseph Campbell is unpacking in like the physical human structure of their day like why they do the things they do how they do the things they do because of you know all of this more esoteric stuff i really liked how he touched on the fact that even in 1967 in his perception where humanity was at that stage of development 20th century 1967 he felt like we had the awareness that there was no more out there or up there that was only right here, like the divinity, the understanding. We have advanced past the stage where we've had this perceived separateness. If it's believed by certain humans out there that they're somehow separate, they're in the minority. So the collective consciousness, the general field of human consciousness has adapted to the divine experience being integrated and fully immersed and a part of our lives. It's, it's really interesting that he even knew that then. Right. And that was 50 years ago. So I, I, and I wrote that in my notes, like what would he think if he could be here now? And also looking at our current mythologies now of how, 
you know, what we're passing on and, and all of those things. Probably like, would think Star Wars ran a little amok. <laughs> it's, like, like, oh, it's like, dang, I wasn't actually I didn't intending. No, it was going to yeah. go like that. <laughs> or like, what would he think of current like technology and social media and all of that as like part of our mythology? Yeah, that's Ooh, uh, that's, that's to think an interesting. Well, thing. and and he also had the outside perspective, the ability to see from that shamanic God's eye view when he talked about how war was a man's battle with himself, like humanity's yeah. battle with themselves. Like he talked about the the guy that was Christian, the other guy that was Muslim, and you know, they're, they're, they're human brothers. He had that awareness Their their humanity. We're just attacking each other. We're just this one family. We've talked in other episodes how that even extends out into multiple dimensions. Mm-hmm. The angels, the extraterrestrials were all just one big family, the lower astral entities, the higher astral entities. We have to figure out a way to make it work with all of us together. It's really interesting how that kind of comes into play but yeah we're all just this one big family and in macrocosmically right it's like out there like we we're just talking about microcosm or humanity i live in this little region of the world like spin the globe a little bit you're over here like what like we're all just like <laughs> all- humans here on earth like the names the countries the states whatever the provinces somebody just made that up. That's all human created. It, it It's not, it wasn't written in stone on the earth. Moses did not come down with tablets that had a map on it. To all the different <laughs> countries and said, look guys, I had my experience. Look at uh, tablet number four, some map of the earth. No, none of that happened. There's, there's nothing coming from on high. that gave us these labels. We created these labels. There's just one land. There's one planet. There's one beautiful human people. We're here and we have to figure out how to work together. We have to figure out how to include everybody. Everybody has to be included. No one can be excluded. We cannot participate in the dark things that we feel are evil and we don't really want to participate in that. And we can figure out a way to stop the people that are doing those things from doing those things and potentially help those people or figure out a different situation. But we can, over time, create a world where we can all live together. I really believe that. Yeah. And because it all comes down to battling yourself to reconcile why you're here and what you have to deal with. If you think about it on that level, it changes everything, right? There's so many it's different layers. So it's just, it works yeah. on so many different layers. So, so. many levels. And it was, it, I was looking at um, when he was talking about, the plants as inspiration, animals as inspiration, and then the planetary beings as inspiration. And so interesting how we choose to, we have to do these kind of repetitions and these, this mimicking, like we're going to mimic the animals. We're going to mimic the plants with life and death and ritual sacrifice. We have to now mimic the planets and, and their movements. And that's just an interesting thing we do as humans to learn about ourselves, I guess, to mimic um, the outside world. To like, yeah, mimic that and mirror it and try it on. And, and it seems like you have to try on all these different hats. Well, here's the thing. Did that know. happen through evolution and coming up from, let's say, like a primordial caveman type human? Or did we de-evolve having high technology, lost it over millennia? And then when we came, we became extremely tribal humans after 
centuries and centuries of not having the technology we lost. We mimicked the animals' behaviors because we saw that they survived and we needed to survive. Mm-hmm. We don't have to mimic those behaviors anymore, people. <laughs> okay? We're so, we have plenty know. to survive. We have the technology. Thank you, aliens. Uh, we have the technology to make sure everybody's taken care of sufficiently in, in an unoppressed way, unoppressive way. So... I guess thank you for being here, Bryn. Vinylforceherbs.com yeah, is your website. You know, she makes incredible herbs. You know, she's making some now. It's still always still in process. Still making them. <laughs> it doesn't stop, <laughs> actually. Know. You know, that's how it gets out there to the world. I want to thank you guys for being here, and I want to thank Joseph Campbell. Wherever thank you, he Joseph is. Campbell. Yeah, wherever he is now, thank you for your uh, life of service and dedication. It's fun listening to your humor voice. in there. Yeah, you're a comedian. You could have been a comedian, you know, maybe. Like, you could have had a career as a comedian, maybe. Maybe that's what you're doing up there. You're done talking about philosophy and mythology and culture. You're just cracking jokes in the next dimension. So, on that note, you all have a great week. Brynn, take care. All right, you too. Bye.